All right, ready? Yeah, let's go. Welcome to Quarantine Comics, the podcast where two guys re-explore the comics and graphic novels from our past. I'm Ryan Joe. I'm Roman Segel. And we're two guys who don't know what we're talking about, but we'll pretend we do for the next 40 minutes. So this week, we're talking about Red Rocket 7 by Mike Allred. Now, look, there's many comic creators out there that you've heard of, you know, whose work you've, you've either heard of them or you can actually recognize their work by the words that they write or even the pictures that they draw. And usually it's the superstars, right? The the Alan Moores, the Jim Lees. Mike Allred, to some, I would argue, he's not a household name. To comic book geeks, he is. He has a really, obviously, easy, easily recognizable style, but he is distinct. Almost, and maybe I'm a bit of a fanboy of his, but he is almost Kirby-esque. His storytelling is simple, but sometimes absurd. And, you know, he broke onto the scene in the early 90s indie comic scene with comics like Mad Men and... Not to be confused with like Don Draper, uh, Mad Man, I should say, was in his comic. And more recently, he actually had a more notable run of credits, whether his like really interesting run on Ecstatics or his run on Silver Surfer, which if you haven't read and you like mainstream stuff, go read those. But I, I've recently been thinking about him and he to me, Mike Allred is like Wes Anderson, the filmmaker. You either love him or you hate him. And I find it hard to believe that there can be any in between about him, although I have a feeling people might contest that. But let's talk about this book, Red Rocket 7, 1997. I don't think I discovered the book until later, but it merges my two great pop culture loves, comic books and rock and roll. But it's also science fiction and told like a documentary in a quasi Forrest Gump style where the protagonist, through his own unique story, is a witness to history. So I could pretty much talk about this all night, but that's why Ryan's here as well. And we decided to do something different for this episode and we're going to start bringing friends. We are going to force our comic book recommendations upon them. So I want to welcome our first guest to Quarantine Comics, my buddy Paresh. Paresh, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I, before, to, to, I want people to know a little bit about your comic book sensibilities really quick. Can you tell people, and I actually think I already know the answers because I asked them to you in a job interview once, <laughs> favorite comic book, favorite comic book character, and then maybe favorite comic book creator? Ah, very good. Okay, so my favorite comic book ever, I guess, would have to be Kingdom Come. Great graphic novel, really love it, totally out there, taking existing characters that you know and love and just putting some subver subversive twists on them. My some would say it's a commentary on Superman's management style. <laughs> <laughs> we can get back to that. But my favorite character ever is Nightwing. Dick Grayson to be, I guess, if I have to be more specific, he's my favorite. And then in terms of a creator, I would have to say Grant Morrison. Well, actually, I want to go back to the Nightwing thing because that one's sort of unusual to me. Why, why Nightwing, Paresh? So Nightwing and Dick Grayson specifically, he's been around since the beginning of comic book culture, right from the very beginning. And he's one of the few characters who has seen, I guess this is a weird phrase, but sustainable change. You know, for the longest time, you know, Peter Parker will always at some point go back to being a high school student. Bruce Wayne will always be whatever in his mid thirties. Dick Grayson, however, has changed and continued to change and evolve. And somehow that is very appealing to me because I'm used to comics that maintain a status quo, especially when you're talking about st serialized storytelling. And it's very interesting when a character 
what's the word, metamorphosizes. Is that a word? But that's what happened to him, right? He went from Robin to Nightwing and continues to change even now. Like the recent stuff I'm not a big fan of, but he's still changing. And uh, I really like him. What was your take on Grant Morrison's Batman and Robin, since that was Dick Grayson taking up the Batman mantle? Loved it. Loved it. What he did was very smart, right? Because he flipped the switch on what Batman and Robin usually is. And in that one, Damian Wayne Robin is super serious, super gritty. And and the Batman, Dick Grayson Batman, is kind of lighthearted. Like, oh, whatever. This guy's well, well, he, And he's, I'm a circus performer, right? Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. I really liked it. I, I think part of Dick Grayson's appeal is also he's the everyman, right? He was literally designed for little kids to be able to see themselves by Batman's side. But he grew up, and as he grew up, fans were growing older as well, even exactly. though it was on a very different timeline than people growing up. Robin existed as a character and was becoming Nightwing. Actually, no, he was already Nightwing as we were kids in the 80s, but, and he also had a hot girlfriend, multiple hot girlfriends. Multiple, actually. But, yeah. he's also, but he's also been the punching bag of the DC universe. Uh-huh. Yeah, that too, to yeah. some extent. I mean, to, to what, you, what you just said is very relevant, though. Besides just individuals and readers growing up with him, like you said, the industry grew up with him in a way. It, it mirrored what was happening in the industry in general. When things got a little bit more serious, Robin had to get more serious, too. And and go off on his own, but at the same time still maintain his optimism and lightheartedness. You could probably see the reflection of the entire comic book industry in his character development. And I'm glad I've successfully hijacked this podcast. I was about to say them's fighting words, but I'm not going to let you fight that battle on... uh... Uh, Nick and Nightwing, you can listen to Paresh's other comic book podcast. <laughs> All right, Ryan, tell me about Red Rocket 7. What, I'm genuinely curious, like throwing Mike Allred at people. I love to see what their reaction was. Love him, hate him. Are you one of the few people who thinks he's in between? Like, tell me. I've always liked Mike Allred's aesthetic. It's unique. It's something that I, you know, you don't see a lot of in comics. I have not read Madman. But I saw the individual issues back when it was still coming out. And that was around the time I was really interested in image comics. So it was a really interesting counterpoint, right, to the completely exaggerated masculinity that was sort of depicted by guys like Todd McFarlane and, and Rob Liefeld. Yeah, yeah. At the time, that sort of quirky sensibility that Mike Allred brought to comics wasn't something that I was interested in. And I have to admit, I haven't read a lot of Mike Allred. I said I I was familiar with Madman, but only in terms of knowing that it existed. I never read it. The first Mike Allred comic that I read was his run on X-Force, which he only illustrated. He didn't write. So this is really my first... Mike Allred comic. I've always liked his style. I've always admired him kind of from afar, but I've never really felt like I've dived completely into his head. And for me, Red Rocket 7 is sort of a love letter to rock and roll as well as to really weird, goofy sci-fi. It's a lot of fun. I actually kind of feel that Red Rocket 7 could have actually been expanded into almost like a maxi series. It almost, when you when you kind of have this double-braided narrative of Red Rocket 7 in space, his sci-fi adventures, as well as his antics in in the Western music scene as it starts to mature and change. Those almost feel like stories that, two stories that he could have devoted a few graphic novels to each side. And it almost would have come together a lot better, a lot more interestingly. I feel in a way, sometimes it was perfunctory the way he kind of brought these two threads together. So it's not that it left you wanting more, it's that you think there could have been more. Oh, there absolutely could have been more. Red Rocket 7, as he kind of maneuvers his way through the music scene. What do you think, Paresh? So in my opinion, over 
overall, I enjoyed it. I'm precisely going to fall into that middle camp that you said didn't exist. But overall, I really did enjoy it. This is my first foray into anything Michael Allred. I was tangentially aware of him. I was aware of his art style, very poppy. I'd seen it in some runs before, but never read anything by him. What I really enjoyed about all this was how unique it was in exploring some crazy, really lofty sci-fi goals and then incorporating basically the history of rock and roll into it at the same time. To what to what Ryan said, I definitely think there could have been more on each of those things. So I think Michael Allred on his own in this, he was more interested in writing the music elements of it as opposed to the sci-fi parts. I actually thought the sci-fi parts could have used a little bit more detail, could have allowed some more room to breathe. But overall, I did enjoy it. Did I love it? No, I don't know if I love it. <laughs> well, you won't be back on the podcast. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, I, there's something interesting about it being his love letter to rock and roll. As a guy who'd been a creator, who'd already had like a lot of indie acclaim, he was like, oh, I've got some acclaim. I want to work on my pet project. But yeah, I think he left a few things on the side. But, it, but he, it, shows, yeah. it shows that that's what he loved the most. Like those, the parts where he's going through all the way from, you know, Little Richard and Elvis all the way through, you could tell that's what he really enjoyed writing. It really shows. It was probably the most interesting parts of the entire run, and it's the majority of it, honestly. Well, Roman, let me ask you, what, did you love it? And if so, or even if not, what resonated with you the first time you read it? And then coming back to it, did you have a different reaction? Yeah, that's, you know, it's funny. On this podcast, every book I've recommended has been something I read at a really interesting point in my life. And when I read it, I was like, oh my God, five out of five. And then later on, when I actually had more money, let me buy the trade. It's got to always be on my shelf, and it will always be in my top 10. That was with the Kingdom Come episode with Scott Pilgrim. But with those two, I went back to it and maybe through our like contrarian conversation and debate on this podcast, I started to not give it a five out of five anymore. And this one, you know, I, it, I read it quick. I read it in two days and I love it as much then as I do now. And I think the difference versus those other books, those other books did things that have since been repeated. Literally movies have been made, right, about some of them and aped the style. That's a good point. And so it didn't feel as original going back to Kingdom Come or even Scott Pilgrim. But with Red Rock at seven, I I mean, other than other Michael Red stuff, his Silver Surfer run is an ex ecstatics run and his a return to Madman. I don't see a lot of this sort of storytelling. Like after my daughter was born a few years ago, I started watching rock documentaries. And that's like the only thing I, you know, and those became pretty popular for a handful of years. I just don't see this kind of storytelling done. I mean, the only equivalent that probably predates this, which is I think where he kind of stole liberally from was Forrest Gump. Yeah, I just continue to have so much fun with it. A little bit of logistics. I have the original issues. Paresh lives 30 minutes up the road. So in a very safe distancing manner, I left him on his doorstep and I'm reading it in the short graphic novel that I never read. I'd only read the issues, but I was like, I must have the graphic novel. This must always be on my shelf. And I actually did not enjoy reading the graphic novel because the original issues, every issue is the size of an album, like an actual record album. And you can really bask in the art and the graphic novel version of it doesn't make it lar larger than life. It made me kind of look at the boxes. So honestly, that's the only thing I didn't like about it. The second time around, I think the greater appreciation probably came from I am at heart a comic book and a rock and roll lover. Like seriously, those are my two jams. Obviously, cheese and crackers and my kid and backpacking, all the trappings of being an adult have preceded those. And if anything, pushed comic books and rock and roll to the back burner in my life. And uh, reading this took me back, man. There are a couple of things I caught this time around that through my older sensibilities, I didn't like. Like I have my one thing. There's like only one thing about this that bothers me that I read through fresh eyes. And it's he's at a pool party with one of the original 
Rolling Stones. And then the, the aliens, the infinites attack and his friend falls in a pool and dies. Now, this is the only part of it I don't like. I don't mind inserting yourself into history, but as an older adult, inserting yourself into, you know, that time JFK got shot. I think an X-Men movie did this too, right? <laughs> that thing, that one historical thing happened. It was really because of aliens. Like I, I meant to look that up. If there was a guy, uh, Brian, I think is his name. Yeah. I don't know if there was a Brian ever and he's a real person who died, but that's kind of not cool. You shouldn't do that. So I want to talk about that moment because that was something that really stuck out to me because yeah. that was a, so that was actually one of my complaints for much of Red Rocket 7 that even though Red Rocket 7 is, you know, a part of Little Richard's career, he's a part of Elvis's career. Technically, his name, of, seven. Technically his name is Seven. Sorry, my bad. I'm not too <laughs> sorry, actually. I mean, he he really doesn't affect that much change. He he teaches Elvis some moves, but in terms of everything else, he's more of a witness. He's a tourist, yeah. He's yeah, he's a tourist, and you almost kind of want him to affect more change or have a more direct effect on whatever happens to these musicians' careers. And in that instance, he does. But as you point out, it's sort of capitalizing on a on a. Tra- I assume the ca- I assume the person was real. I'm not a music buff like you are, but I assume the car- the guy was real and taking uh fictional I guess layering onto what might be a real tragedy rang a little tone deaf well yeah and also that this was a moment where seven's story really affected you know history and that that's kind of really the first time you see that explicitly and so that moment really sticks out for that reason and it's almost something that i feel that all red should have set up earlier and that kind of goes to the point of this should be longer if he actually has you know kind of shows in detail what seven is doing as he works with these musicians and how he's trying to manage his secret identity as an alien the fact that he's being hunted while still kind of in, like rocking out that would have been really really cool and that's something that really each each episode is his time with little richard his time with elvis could have been almost its own its own issue its own chapter i agree but i think the danger in that it's if you do that this is actually the difference between good and great maybe to do a whole issue on little richard or elvis is taking a really big swing that could fall flat versus I, mean, I literally think he just wanted to be a, in, it's, it's interesting you say I'm a rock and roll buff I'm not I'm a rock and roll fan I love good rock music I have What's I want to have a fan and a buff Robin a, okay <laughs> buff <laughs> boofing <laughs> with my friends I, I need more Brent Kavanaugh jokes here la boof yeah a I enjoy end product a buff is someone who knows all the history I don't know the history in fact I don't I love good rock music but I didn't have an appreciation for the greats in fact there were three of the greats that when I started to really develop my rock sensibilities going to shows, having a willing to argue about bands. I didn't, there were three blind spots I had and they were the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. And I got into this argument with my friend Rajiv about the Beatles. And he was like, okay, you can't not be a rock fan if you don't like the Beatles. I'm like, I just, I never had an appreciation. I have one album that my dad gave me. And so when I moved to Asia, he gave me all of his MP3s for the Beatles. I didn't have access to new music and going to shows because it was like the mid 2000s, pre Spotify era, and a government that would crack down on piracy and cane you. So <laughs> I, I listened to all of my Beatles MP3s and I became a Beatles fan backpacking through Asia. Then when my daughter was born, I became a Bob Dylan fan because I was kind of sequestered at home for a few months. And I still haven't had my Springsteen run yet. But the point is, the fact that this guy Brian died, I don't know if that's a thing. I probably should look that up, but 
I actually have a point of view on Exile on Main Street, right? Like, and what's my favorite Rolling Stones album? Or when did the Beatles get good? Or talking about their transition from a boy band to being Radiohead. That's what a buff does. And when I first read this, I was less of a buff. And I still, I don't have a point of view on The Who, so to speak. And I know I should. I have a point of view on Zeppelin and deep points of view on it. So being a fan, I think, is more being an appreciator of the music. And being a buff is, I could tell you all the, I could tell you about who Brian was and the controversy of that and if that was a real thing. And I actually can't, you know? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Tangent. Anyway, my point is a buff knows the history. A fan just likes the music. And I'm becoming a buff, but I'm not quite a buff on a lot of these things. But I just, I, I want, I, and it's more important to me to develop an appreciation of the music and the sound and which album I like best than the history of the album or who died or whatever. Well, one thing I will say, I mean, so that whole Brian thing, right? Assuming it's it's true and all of that is real. Yeah. Uh, a little tone deaf, a little not cool to insert an alien. Of the one time to affect change in the world when the guy died, right? Well, I mean, going back to the other things he did, though, I mean, in a way, if you're talking, if you pay attention to the beginning when he's hanging out with little Richard and then he shows Elvis some of the moves that little Richard taught him, I mean, he's basically inserting himself into, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about Elvis culturally, culturally appropriating all that stuff, which they touch on here. He kind of inserted himself there, too, right? But that, but that's more Forrest Gumpian, you know? Totally. But that's part of it. And I, in terms of what Ryan was saying before, though, I do, I did want to see more of that. And mainly because it seemed just like Allred was having the best time of his life doing some of that stuff. It's very evident that that's what he loved. And there's so much that it just, it just time jumps. You don't even realize it. Like you go from one panel to the next and all of a sudden it's a year later and you're like, wait a second. So I I noticed that when I read it because that kept happening. And then I was like, oh, let me go look at the letter date. And I was like, oh my God, one year happened between like the top row and the bottom row. I just want to clear this up lest we seem too ignorant. I Googled, I did the magic Google. Brian Jones, founder and original leader of the Rolling Stones and was found uh, dead in a in a swimming pool. So yes, Rue person. And that was really how he how he died, perhaps minus the aliens. We'll never know. We'll, we'll, we'll never, never know. know. But kind of going off on it wasn't his intention to kind of do a deep dive into each of the musicians, but to just kind of show a tour through major points in American and British music history in the 20th century. And I totally get it. But at the same time, because Red, because Seven, sorry, Red was his civilian name. Because he touches each person, so each musician so briefly, seems to have such meaningful encounters with the Beatle, with Little Richard, with Elvis, etc. I mean, heck, he's part of Brian Jones's death, as we just were talking about. It almost kind of begs to have more of uh, a dramatic depiction of what his relationship with each individual was like. All right. So I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight you on this. Yeah. Uh, I think, and Paresh, but again, you could fight me back on this. <laughs> I think when you read it in a little, what is this, six by six inch graphic novel, or what? It's, it's super tiny. It's like abnormally tiny. It all runs together. When you read them in the issues, I could be wrong. I need to think about it. Like, there, I felt like when I was rereading it, yesterday and today i was like man he spent a lot of time on bowie man he spent a lot of time on the stones and i wonder if those were issues i think is every issue a chapter and look if they were if hbo were to make this into a show which god i hope they never do and they probably never will but yeah is one episode or one season about an era and i think each issue is i need to go back to the tape and check but i feel like each issue might be an era and might have done what you wanted maybe not in as much time but even looking at the covers, like there's a very Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's cover. I doubt that's a Beatles cover because, you know, he interacts with the Beatles multiple times. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, I uh, I wonder if it's already done that and we just read it. I can I totally concede that point because as you mentioned, my my copy is it's this consolidated graphic novel. It's probably about a third of the size of the original single issues. Um, and I read it really quickly. I kind of blew through it, so almost reading it as so so rather than kind of like listening to it as if it were an album, you know, you read one issue, one giant size issue, and you really luxuriate in the detail of the art. You kind of take your time through it because you know Which you're is not what I did. next month. Yeah, I can kind of see the reading experience and the experience of the narrative would be completely different. I think with this specifically, so Raman was kind enough to give me those larger than life copies and I read through each each one of them and you really spend a lot of time on the artwork. You really linger on all of it. And I think that's, in my opinion, at least I would say like 70% of the joy of this because the artwork is, is really great. It's really colorful. There are little things that you see in the background when he's talking to Bowie or when he's involved in, in Bowie's timeline over there. You see a lot of interesting things. And the fact that this is not shaped like a... Like like a regular comic book or graphic novel. It's almost like a like a kid's storybook in a way. It made it easier to digest for me. Maybe I'm a child, but I loved it. No, what, what's interesting is, um, so I'm looking at the front of the graphic novel and it says 10 chapters, but because it's Red Rocket 7, I believe there's seven books. So, you know, some books have one chapter, some have two. So I don't know. I, but again, and that's what's interesting. Like, and if you read it digitally, God, I can't imagine reading this on an iPad, right? Because the iPad is like the perfect size for mm. a normal comic book, but not for this one because it's a square. Yeah. What did you think about the sci-fi elements of the graphic novel or of the the comics? That's what left me wanting more, honestly, the sci-fi side of things. So actually something I took away. So when I first read it though, Paresh, I used to be, so I'm an atheist and back, I was raised a Hindu. So reincarnation is a thing that I was raised with. And then I, because well, I'm spiritual, I believe in God, but I don't know. And then I had tragedy and I'm, I don't believe in God, right? Mm-hmm. But when I read it, I was kind of somewhere in between, well before I even started flirting with the idea of rejection of God. And the, from a sci-fi perspective the two big protagonists are the infinites and whatever the red rockets the original was from the celestonians or something yeah the celestonians so basically the premise is there is there's this superior alien race kind of like the united federation of planets that's discovered immortality and they're like just spreading their immortality throughout the universe and then there's this like one society that's like totally hipster and totally just like nah man we believe in the afterlife just live your life live a good life the end And, and the afterlife awaits you. And I ar- I would argue, Paresh and Ryan, they could have gone so much more into that. But the <laughs> fundamental premise is the original where Red or Seven and his brothers were cloned from were escaping the Celestonians, the guys who were like immortality. But the problem is because of the science of the cloning, they are immortal too, even though they're from this race of people who believe in the afterlife. And that juxtaposition, like it was so much fresher in my mind now as someone who's literally thought about life and death far too much in my adult life, right? And religion and all of these things. And once again, this podcast reveals something that I was left wanting more of. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I kind of wonder if Alred seemed to be going between just like letting the sci-fi be sort of like this pop adventure, very shallow sort of story that kind of sets everything up versus trying to say something more because there's this whole element of religiosity of life after death. I mean, that's kind of like Seven's big thing, right? He loses his wife, Lori, when she's young and he's just so looking forward to potentially seeing her again. Oh, and spoiler alert, he does. And he does. So it already kind of introduces a lot of elements of spirituality and religiosity. The battle between the two alien species reeks of religious conflict. But at the same time, he never really, I, I don't feel he goes, it, it's mostly just sort of like backdrop at the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> 
So it's, it's, perfect, it's, it's the perfect word. All the big ideas in Red Rocket Seven are just backdrop. It's to the rock and roll I mean, story. That, that can be a positive in some way. I mean, these are some lofty ideas that are probably best left a little bit ambiguous. But I do agree that could have been fleshed out so much more. And and they just throw some things out there like, oh, the same scripture that's in the Celestonian thing is was given to Moses back in the day. <laughs> right. They just, it's like in one panel they did that. Yeah, I was, like, I was like, wait, you just see a picture of Moses with, with two tablets, stone tablets walking yeah, down. You see like, a okay. Mike Allred drawing of Moses. And I was like, awesome. can we can we linger on this maybe for one more second? <laughs> well, you know what I love? One fundamental, so I love, actually I said, I lied. I said it combines two things I love. It's three things I love. It's comic books, rock and roll, and science Fiction. So the thing I love about science fiction that it does so artfully well is it says it's secretly talking about race, Star Trek or the Cold War, Star mm-hmm. Wars or the Israel-Palestine conflict, Deep Space Nine or 9-11, Battlestar Galactica. But it's like, oh, we're not actually talking about that. We're talking about robots and, and aliens. No, we're not talking. And it's commentary. Sci-fi is such an amazing weapon for commentary on social issues. And even the X-Men do it with Malcolm X and and Martin Luther King, the competing ideology. But no, we're not actually talking about that. We're talking about a guy who can shoot stuff from his eyes. And sometimes, obviously, a lot of those other series that I mentioned do it really well. And they like, they jam it down your throat. If you don't know that, look, it's one thing to say no one knows that Deep Space Nine is about the Israel-Palestine conflict. But if you can't see Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and the X-Men, you're kind of missing the point. Mm -hmm. But this one, it does gloss over it, but maybe it's glossing over it because it's like, we're just going to inception you with it. You know, like, that's your job, reader. Go, go think about this some more. But I don't know. Maybe, you know, I do get conflicted sometimes. I know we've been saying, oh, I wish he'd done more with this and with this part and this part. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for just kind of alluding to something bigger yeah. and letting the reader fill in the blank. I mean, I, f- I feel so wishy-washy now, but I, even with the rock and roll part, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that isn't depicted narrative. And there is sometimes a certain pleasure with just trying to guess, you know, what his relationship was like with John Lennon, how they actually started out as rivals and then became friends, happens over the course of like three panels. And mm-hmm. again, happens between the lines that creates a level of engagement with the text or with a comic that you might not get if it were just explicitly stated hey ryan you know what i think another good name for this podcast could be like between the panels well you know what if we ever get out of quarantine <laughs> and we decide to change the, the, the name again we'll call it between the panels yes even though I, we're voting out artwork for quarantine comics i like it i like it either way what was each of your favorite things about this for me, it's just kind of the pleasure of Mike Allred's art. I feel like sometimes the words almost get in the way. <laughs> it's just, just such a unique sensibility. I like the way he handles action. I like the way he handles quieter moments. I love the almost collage type aspect of some of the covers. And that's kind of whenever I see a Mike Allred comic, even if I don't read it, it's always just fun to kind of look at how he's laying out the panels, how he's depicting the characters. I will say that with Mike Allred, every book I've read of his has always been pretty, pretty, pretty violent. Again, that was X-Force. And of course, in the beginning of his run on X-Force, the entire team gets just gets massacred, cut in half, in some <laughs> cases, literally. And Red Rocket 7 is a pretty violent book. I mean, you see a lot of mutilation. Oh, but it, but it's so- but it's so like cartoony it's so and like cartoony but you know even still when it happens it's shocking you know because how poppy and fun everything has been and then when you see this moment when his brothers are 
executed by being shot through the head in yeah, front of yeah. you know you're just like dude that fucking sucks so there's a certain impact that Allred is able to get because for the most part his, his work is just fun cartoony poppy and then when you see a character Matt who you care about or who other people care about massacred and executed it leaves an impression I'll give you credit Ryan so those guys who got the brothers who got massacred they never went into him other than like this one was good at math like they, this yeah. you know clearly he was they he, did one it. Was instinct yeah but I think because, you know, you kind of get a sense that these 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 brothers contributed, right? They contributed to the technological With evolution Einstein. of yep. the United States. And you also got a sense, and this is what Michael Oliver is really good, at, at kind of creating this camaraderie between the brothers. You could tell they all kind of love each other. They behave like brothers. And so when you see them dead, even though you never really followed them, you, you know how much their deaths impact the surviving brothers. And that's where you get... To me, that's where you got that emotional oomph. So that leads into actually, that is my favorite part of the entire run is when they go back to that planet and they're trapped and the brothers get massacred. I thought that was the, there was so much tension. And to your point, some of the criticisms that we've been saying where we wish he would have gone more into some of this stuff with those brothers that passed away specifically, less was more in those situations, I think. They alluded to the fact that they helped with the technological advancements in, in mankind. They alluded to the fact that they had a wife and kids. They alluded to their camaraderie in a couple of panels before that, after Lori died and they were all getting together um, more often. And then when you go there and then you actually see them get shot in the head, lasered, you know, Red Rocket 2's hands are cut off. You see like the little white speck for the bone in there in that poppy art style. The, all, that whole thing was, it was wonderfully paced and and thrilling in my view even though we kind of knew they were going to die i think they said they said it before that those three brothers had died before but it still had a great impact the, that was probably my favorite moment in the whole thing it happens so quickly i mean there's mm -hmm. this interrogation there, everything's been all right they've been captured their, their captors are pretty polite and one panel of suddenly zow that's the word that Allred uses, zow. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly one brother gets shot through the head. And then it's so systematic. Boom, boom. They kill two others. And I think that suddenness leads to a lot of the, the emotional shock because we're really not expecting it. Even mm -hmm. though we kind of know, it's foreshadowed, as you mentioned, they're going to die. We just don't know when. And when it happens, somehow it's really, really shocking and really disturbing. The other um, really brutal uh, is when Five takes his tattoo out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's like a what? hole in his head and he's bleeding and talking at the same time. When, yeah, when you meet him as a character, he just has a scar. And so you know something happened. I think, Parish, Parish, you tell me what, what was your, or did you already, was that your favorite thing? Or? That was my favorite part. That whole sequence was, I think, the best. And that's why I, I was saying, like, he clearly didn't have the proper balance, I think, between sci-fi and the music stuff. But when he dug into the sci-fi, like, that whole sequence is just sci-fi and, and tragedy. But it was so well done. You know, I think that's kind of, maybe that that's one of the reasons why I felt some of the stuff with the musicians was missing because when Allred zooms into like a character's emotional state when he's mourning the loss of Lori he did a lot of detail in, in his emotional situation and how he copes same thing with the execution of the brothers those moments are really really hit home and it's because he Allred slows the story down and he zeroes in on these moments of great change for Seven and whereas when he's kind of playing with the, hanging out with the musicians it's almost just kind of like fun it's a romp it's like yeah and then you know I taught Elvis some moves and then I met the Beatles and I hung out with the Rolling Stones. And there's Dylan. It's almost like a check mark of like certain musical milestones that that seven was lucky enough to be a part of. But it's those emotional moments that are slower and sudden, almost sort of paradoxically, that really stick with us, I think. So my uh, 
I, this is worth saying. I don't know if you guys know this. And I'm so jealous of this. Like this will never happen in my life. This leads into one of my favorite things. So I was going to say one of my favorite things is the color and the covers, which I'll talk about in a sec. Mike Allred, almost everything he does, you know, his colorist is his wife, Laura yeah. Allred. And I actually did not know that. Yeah, part of and I had to double check that before I made the statement about this one. And clearly, this was like his thing. The one thing he wanted to do in life was make this rock and roll love letter. And it's literally a letter in some parts. But part of what makes the pop art work, the Roy Lichten style, Jack Kirby style is the color. It pops. It's like 10 colors, maybe 20. And it's the color. And that leads me to the cover. So, you know, it's funny, my daughter in her room, I have these um, just 11 by 17 printed at work, framed pictures from storybooks that I've read her, whether it's Curious George or the pandas from John J. Muth, a few other things. And there's, you know, it's funny, after we read Rusty Brown, Ryan, unfortunately, I don't have to return to the library yet, but I like, I want to scan some of the pages and print them out on 11 by 17 sheets of paper and frame them. And some of these covers, and they're not issue covers, they're like album mock-ups. So the obvious one is the Sgt. Pepper's one, but there's, I think it's a maybe Bowie, I, I don't know, or Pink Floyd. There's like the one with him sitting in front of the airplane about to come crashing through the window, or the one of him sitting at a movie theater, which he liked to do, set Red liked to do a lot with the 3D glasses. And there's just some amazing covers that are just like pinup art, so to speak. I think there's so many things that are my favorite, but it's the art sensibility taking me on a tour ride through this. And the color is a huge part. And Laura, while she wasn't part of the storytelling element, like this thing would be flat if it wasn't for the color. Agree 100%. Yeah, when, when, when you mentioned, uh, when you asked Roman, what was my favorite part? I mean, I mentioned it was, the, you know, just kind of like paging through the art. I mean, the color is, is a huge part of it. I can't imagine reading a Mike Allred book in black and white. I mean, there are some artists where you're sort of like their, their, their style tends towards black and white or would work in black and white, white for for Mike Allred, I mean, a big part of his art is is the color. Are you guys aware that there is like a companion soundtrack and a movie? I own it. Well, so uh, so when I bought this, I in, it came out in '97. I bought the. I became obsessed with Madman in the late '90s, early 2000s, and I bought Red Rocket issues on the ones you have, Paresh, on eBay. Mm -hmm. I have the album. I remember listening to it back in the day and being underwhelmed because the fucking Dandy Warhols are in it. I love the Dandy Warhols are up there with like Weezer and the Beatles for me. And I actually now want to go back and listen to it. Like I was about to go into the basement and dig out my album. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll send you guys the MP3s, but I don't know if it's that good because it's Mike Allred's band, which isn't probably as good as the Dandy Warhols. <laughs> but isn't the premise that that album is by like officially his son? Red Rocket yeah. 7's yeah. son. Yeah. That he finds out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, I bought the album on eBay. I have it. So I'll follow up with you guys on that. Yeah. That's just, I haven't listened to it and I haven't seen the movie that apparently. I don't know if the movie did. ever got made. I don't know if the movie got made. I think he did it. It's on IMDb at least. All right. Oh, Was it yeah. animated or live action? No, I, I think it's live action because all the credits are just his family members. At <laughs> least or everybody with the last name Allred. But like, I haven't seen any of that. I haven't listened to it. But God, that's just some courageous stuff. And I, and I love the fact that he's just so into it that like you could tell the passions there. It's great. Well, if you um, impress, you only have the issues, but in the graphic novel, and I think Ryan, you got the version I got the, the forward is by Robert Rodriguez, who is like Quentin Tarantino's like sidekick. Well, that makes sense. And the afterward is by Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance, who, you know, made the comic book Umbrella Academy. So yep. like Allred's dialed in to like the music and film scene pretty 
he's just like made friends. I, I don't know about his talents in these other mediums. Yeah, that was really cool um, in terms of just seeing that that's out there. I'm definitely going to listen to that later. One thing I did want to say as like something that distracted me probably the entire time is I did not buy the romance between Five and Lynn. I think oh, no. The journalist? Yeah. Yeah. That happened way too fast. All of a sudden, they're just like holding hands in a diner and she's she's all into this. Like it just (laughs) I didn't buy that at all. And that was kind of unnecessary, I think. I I think it was just a narrative element. It's a narrative element. But one they could have it could have been fine if they had just been like talking. It's interesting, like, because I think Lori gets maybe uh, probably less screen time, screen time, panel time, I guess is what you call it, (laughs) fewer words. But somehow that relationship between Lori and Seven is a lot more resonant and feels a lot more real. And maybe that's just because you kind of see Lori and Seven together over multiple periods of time actually doing something. Over over the decades, yeah. Yeah, rather than falling in love, like, at the literally like the snap of your fingers over a cup of coffee in a diner. It's, It's unclear. You know what it is? You can kind of see how Lori and Seven bonded. I have no idea how or why Five and the journalist yeah. bonded so quickly. But yeah, yeah. That, 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 that felt really like, ooh, I don't know if that, I think that, that feels kind of like a misstep. Like a, <laughs> yeah, it's, for the, it's for the fanboys. <laughs> for what fanboys? No, we're, we're, we're saying don't do it. We're the, I, I think we're fanboys. No, 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 no. But what I mean is coming back even to the Dick Grayson thing at the beginning, comic books are written for the reader. And nine times out of 10, the reader fits a certain demographic. I hate to say it, but it does. And the reader sometimes wants to see themselves in the shoes, whether as Dick Grayson or someone, right? You you identify with the hero, hopefully, or it takes you into a place of someone you wish you could be. And so there's this attractive, interesting journalist who is the narrator for much of the show, much of the comic other than the letters. And so I I genuinely wonder, I mean, it's and it's kind of hacky to do that. So this wasn't even, but it wasn't the main character. I mean, it was. No, I don't don't disagree. But well, for sure, seven the main character but you spend all, the second most character you spend your time with is i guess five right yeah and so i again i don't agree with why it was done but i understand I under, why it was. yeah it's fan i see it was a, it's fanboy wish fulfillment but you well, know I what mean, it, it, it can be done it just i think it needed it needed a better execution however it was done was not the right way well, it's, a, it's also a betrayal of who she was when you first meet her she's a hard-nosed mm-hmm. skeptical cynical journalist who knows how to get shit done sounds like a podcast co-host and then at the end she's just like i love you i love i love you five i love you and your alien blood you know like come on man fun fact ryan's a reporter and he is (laughs) hard-nosed oh man but yeah i mean that part didn't really resonate with me but the the other part i wanted to ask you guys about was the revelation that Lori's sister basically took advantage of him, drugged him, oh, roofied him. I don't know. I don't know what happened. No, he, she didn't roofie him. He was already okay. Yeah, he was out. already he was already whatever well, passed out or whatever it was. She says she took advantage of him. I mean, she definitely you know yeah that was also you know, one here's of those what I, I say. Look, the reporter I'm not a fan of. The other part, life happens. Life's complicated. Shit happens. And I actually like the complexity of I like hanging out with her younger sister. But why? Why do oh, I totally. like that? Because she looks like his dead wife she's like he's it's like a it's like a you know you saw hitchcock's vertigo but it's the same <laughs> creepy ass thing she looks like, like no no, no the difference is the difference in the characters are not immortal if you watched any highlander ryan like being immortal 
changes your perception on things. Agreed. And I'm not, I, I didn't bring that scene up out of like criticism. I was just like, that was shocking. That happened out of kind of out of nowhere in terms of how they brought it up. Again, maybe that's one, one example of something that we could have lingered on a little bit more too. I felt like, like you said, Roman, life happens. It's, it gets complicated. Shit happens. But I mean, if you're going to go in that direction, don't just stick your toes in the pool. Dive in. Well, would I to defend it a little bit? Unless you're Brian Jones, don't <laughs> dive in. <laughs> what, oh, I, what I'd say is, from a timeline perspective, you couldn't have done that in having had Red had a son. And why the second time around reading it, the deeper appreciation was Red having a son was just kind of like a fun, convenient thing when I read it as a, a teenager. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense this time because he's this person who doesn't think he's a real person. Mm-hmm. I'm just a clone. The Native American mentor of theirs, he's like, no, you guys are fully, someone tells the brothers, you guys are fully realized people with hopes and dreams. And to be a person who fathered a son, I think literally puts an exclamation point on that. You are a person. You are not a clone. And and again, he could he have fathered someone with Lori? Sure. But then that person wouldn't be the 20-year-old at the end of the book. And, and frankly, that 20-year-old could have been more significant to the end. Maybe he should have been at the beach scene in the fight, but he wasn't. He's just like, oh, I found out he's my son, and he looks kind of cool and doesn't have red hair. Yeah. So anyway, any, any parting thoughts as we wrap this up? A lot. I mean, it basically, it kind of reminded me of some of those classic apocalyptic endings in those big graphic novels, whether it's Crisis on Infinite Earths or something. You're on a beach, or you're in this very picturesque setting, and then the end of days in a way is happening and, and and I guess God shows up at the end. I wanted to get your take on this because I tried to go online to see if anybody was talking about the ending. I couldn't find much. The internet wasn't invented when this comic yeah, ended. I know. <laughs> so I, I did want to discuss the ending with you guys. I mean, it, it's goofy. Before even the God figure shows up, it's really the kind of the last page. I don't think there's much to read into it. It's almost sort of like, and here's God, and then you kind of just end roll credits, fade to black. Because I mean, he's already just leaving it up to you to interpret what happens afterwards. But I will say like with a concert scene, again, it's sort of like, okay, you know, the magic cord that kills all of the enemies, you kind of roll your eyes. But on the other hand, I also really appreciated the fact that this is when the rock and roll and the sci-fi actually comes together. I was kind of wondering if it would happen or not. And it does. And I'm just kind of gratified if if it didn't, if it resolved with some regular gunfight or whatever, I would have been extremely disappointed. There would have been no point to having the rock and roll stuff. I'm really glad because that's that's what I really enjoyed about it. And I don't think it was, I mean, I actually think it was, it it was earnest. I mean, his message, he clearly, like I said, the whole time, he's a big fan of rock and roll. You can feel that in the pages and the, the end message at the end of that is, is basically music will, music will save everybody. Right. I mean, physically manifest. So I actually really liked it. I I didn't um, think I would. I don't, I mean, you guys have summarized it, but I think most of the scenes in the end are big. I, I was flipping through this. I was about to say the last thing he says is peace, warmth, calm at last. But literally, you flip to the next page, and he's in the afterlife with Lori, and he's like, thank you, God, thank you. But then the the one panel I appreciate more than the one of, like, God descending, and it's cinematic, and it's not done well in a small graphic novel, is this the scene of the original walking down the sand with all the other Infantinians or whatever kind of coming down the sand as well. It's just like the gathering to witness whatever the end time is before God descends. So I like that it happened quickly. Like all things, like everything in this book, the big moments happen fast. Roman, there's also another panel. I think there's an, uh, and maybe it's just in my, in the individual issues, but the last page is actually him in the afterlife with Laurie and all the musicians who died. That one as well. You're right. After, but to your point, it's not fade to black. Like Ryan said, it's God comes down, you figure it out. But here's what happened to Red. Again, it's one more massive panel of Mike Arlod wanting to draw all of his favorite artists in one scene together. Yeah. 
Which again, this book's a love letter, and that's the last panel wasn't about God; it was about the love letter. Yeah. So I mean, like I said, I I, I really liked certain parts of it. I really love certain parts of it, and then there are parts I really didn't like. So right in the middle. Paresh, would you read another Mike Allred piece after this? Yes, of course. I hundred percent would. I, I I can sense. I will I will go into any piece of art, fiction, movie, film, whatever, where somebody has a strong point of view and is just going for what they believe in, whether I agree with it or not. I respect that. I've always liked comics, movies, books, where it feels like you're inside the creator's head. And when that happens, it's interesting. And it's it's interesting enough that even if you think, oh, that's not a good decision, that's not a good, you know, illustration, that's not a good, you know, whip, whip, you know, to take the story, you kind of forgive it because it feels like you're you're tapped in with the writer or the writer, and you're, you're getting almost like a look at their personality, the way they view the world. And there's a level of when that happens, that, that can be really, really staggering that, you know, you frankly don't really get when it comes to most of the superhero books, which are entertaining and fun, but they're not that personal. And everything Mike Allred does, he does, I think, you know, I would imagine when he does, you know, something like Silver Surfer, I mean, I would, I would imagine he would put his own spin on it and make it feel like a, a unique thing. So to the close, unfortunately, because I was about to send you guys the Amazon link, Mike Allred's run on Silver Surfer, it looks like it was written by Dan Slott, but a fun thing about it. And this is so, do you guys know what uh, Silver Surfer says? Maybe the thing he says to his surfboard. Can either of you tell me that? No. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. No. <laughs> you guys lose your nerd cheating. card. He says, to me, my board, right? He says, to me, my board. This And in the Michael Red comic, they give his surfboard a name and it's to me. <laughs> and that, it, just, it speaks to the absurdity and the honesty and just makes you want to smile and laugh thing that is Michael Red. So yeah, to me, my board. Ryan. What are we reading next? Next week, we're reading Alan Moore's until recently lost graphic novel, Marvel Man. And that was part of his 1980s run, which included V for Men and The Killing Joke. But it's probably sort of the least read for a bunch of different reasons. And we are going to be joined by Chandler Clang Smith, who is my former grad school classmate, my friend, and the author of the dragon novel, The Sky is Yours. So join us next week. Paresh, thanks for joining. Awesome. Paresh, great to talk to you. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend, and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Got a suggestion? QTDcomics.com. Shoot us a note. QTDcomics at gmail.com. We give you a social media handle, but we're old, and frankly, that feels like too much work. Thanks for joining. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. And remember, though wealth and fame he's ignored, action is his reward.